On a Saturday night in the middle of August, Missouri Democrats gathered for the party's annual Truman Dinner. It's the biggest event of the year for a party that used to dominate Missouri's politics on a state and national level. The key word there is used to. The last three election cycles have been bruising for the Missouri Democratic Party, resulting in Republican dominance in the state's politics. On this evening, Democratic stalwarts who watched the GOP capture key statewide and legislative posts look to a new leader to engineer a comeback, State Auditor Nicole Galloway. A new way where our politics has integrity, the same integrity that we aspire to in our own lives. The system is rigged, but it doesn't have to be that way. Missouri Democratic leaders believe that most of the party's disparate factions are excited about Galloway's gubernatorial bid. That unity could be critical in the likely campaign against Governor Mike Parson, who has a lot of money in the bank and strong appeal in the state's rural communities. And Missouri Republican leaders like Chairwoman Kay Hoplander believe that her party's fundamentals are strong. Republican Party is picking up new members constantly, not just in Missouri, but throughout the country, of unhappy Democrats that maybe are centrist Democrats that no longer identify with the way that party has turned so far to the left. Even Missouri's most diehard Democrats are not expecting a complete reversal of fortune in one election cycle. But the party's leaders contend they have to start somewhere, and for many, somewhere is the 2020 election cycle. St. Louis Public Radio's Joe Manis, Julie O'Donohue, and Jacqueline Driscoll join me to explore how Missouri Democrats fell so far and what their plan is to climb back into power. I'm Jason Rosenbaum, and this is Politically Speaking. As Missouri Democratic Party Chairwoman Jean Peters Baker spoke to a packed room at the Truman Dinner, she acknowledged the obvious. The last few years have not been kind to Missouri Democrats. And we know that elections are how we keep score in this business. We've had our share of setbacks in Missouri, but we believe, and we believe, we believe the numbers show, there's light. There is light at the end of this tunnel. The setbacks that Baker alluded to in her speech are daunting. Republicans now hold both of the state's U.S. Senate seats and most statewide offices. The GOP also possesses huge majorities in the Missouri House and Senate, giving Democrats little ability to get their policies seriously considered. And it's not hard to figure out why. Democratic candidates are performing dismally in swing parts of the state like Jefferson and Buchanan counties. They're also getting trounced in rural counties that were formerly Democratic strongholds. That's why Missouri Democratic Party Vice Chairman Clem Smith says any rebuild requires bringing suburban and rural voters back into the fold. You can't just focus on St. Louis, Kansas City, and a little bit in the middle. It's got to be everybody. So as a Democratic Party, we've implemented new strategies of going out and meeting people where they are instead of expecting people to come here or having a constant voting block. Some of the party's leaders contend there needs to be a renewed emphasis on boosting turnout among African Americans who for decades have been Missouri Democrats' most reliable voters. The Kansas City Star reported that the Missouri Democratic Party recently hired State Senator Carla May to, quote, build bridges with communities of color. We can overcome all of these things that seem to divide us because I think people are willing 
and ready to overcome them. I just think that we have to sit down and figure out what pathway we're going to take and what message is going to resonate with everybody. One of the issues for Democrats next year is there's no Missouri U.S. Senate race on the ballot. And President Donald Trump is expected to win Missouri's electoral votes without too much trouble. So that means you won't see a huge influx of national money pouring into the show me state. Smith says that presents both challenges and opportunities for his party. It forces you to get back to the grassroots of how this thing started. I mean, people knocking doors and really getting out there because, uh, in a sense, some of the money has dried up. Uh, So you can't just roll over and quit. you got to keep fighting. And I think we can beat them uh, with a ground game. Um, You have to have a good message, a clear message, and and hit those doors. That's not to say that Galloway will be completely isolated next year, as she may get back up from national groups such as the Democratic Governors Association. But there's no question there's a lot of pressure for Galloway to perform well in next year's gubernatorial contest. After her first major speech at the Truman Dinner received a warm reception from the party faithful, Galloway promised to take the fight to all corners of the state against Parson. We're going to take our message uh, at every corner of the state, whether it's Hannibal, Haiti, St. Louis, Kansas City, and everywhere in between. Um, you know, I am not afraid to be myself and be genuine and talk about the issues that people care about. And what I hear, that healthcare is too expensive, that rural hospitals are closing, that people want to feel safe in their communities. Um, and we're going to talk about those things that people care about. And joining me now is intrepid periodic (laughs) political reporter Joe Manis. Joe, would you say that the Missouri Democrats are at their lowest point in modern Missouri history? Yes, I think there's no question. And a big reason, aside from just looking at the numbers, is the fact that they don't have a bench, which is kind of my big thing. When you look at uh, 2000, when the Democrats did so well uh, statewide, losing only one of the statewide offices where they had people on the ballot, and almost all the candidates were fairly well-known. You Even in the weak year, 2004, it wasn't that bad. And then 2008, the Democrats did great and won everything except lieutenant governor. Uh, 2012, uh, many of those, most of those Democrats were back on the ballot, or there were some, some replacements like Jason Kander, and they all did well. And then after that, it was like a cliff. Do you think that part of the reason is that Donald Trump has supercharged the decline of the Democratic Party in rural and exurban areas? The Trump wave can get a little credit for that, but I personally think that it's more a result of the lack of Democratic efforts to build a bench. And uh, I don't mean to throw blame around, but frankly, former Governor Jay Nixon, who was extremely popular in rural Missouri, once he got elected in 2008, Nixon did virtually nothing to try to build a bench uh, in the General Assembly and instead watched his party's numbers reduce during the eight years that he was in office. By 2016, when he was off the ballot, Democrats cratered. They had virtually no strong candidates down ballot aside from um, Chris Coster and Jason Kander. I mean, think about it. I mean, it, and Jason Kander, who was running for the U.S. Senate, almost beat 
uh, Roy Blunt. He didn't, but he almost did. And then Chris Coster lost by five points. And then after that, it was just a blowout. One thing that I heard at the Truman dinner from several House Democrats was how they're going to try to field lots of candidates in lots of different districts. In fact, one of them, State Representative LaDonna Applebaum, explained the strategy like this. Even as they call it maybe a kamikaze candidate, uh, which they may know going in that they might not win, but however many people go out to vote for them, that only helps the statewide, you know, it'll get more votes for Nicole. I remember in 2018 that then Missouri Democratic Party Chairman Stephen Weber also emphasized running lots of legislative candidates as a way to help turn out for Democrats across the state. Obviously it didn't work in 2018. Is it well, a strong is it a strong is it a good idea in 2020? It's a good idea in 2020 and I would argue that it did work in 2018. I How mean, so? Because even though the Democrats didn't do that well, I think they would have done a lot worse and 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 Nicole Galloway almost lost to an extremely weak Republican candidate and if it hadn't been for um, those efforts by the party and Weber's philosophy she might have lost. I'm not saying she would have, but I'm. what I'm saying is sometimes you can say what happened to the Missouri Democrats in 2018 could have been worse. And um, I think going towards 2020, they really need to be looking at trying to rebuild their party. I think it's good that they're trying to have candidates running for the General Assembly. This has been where the Republicans really built up their bench after their problems of 20 years ago, is that they focused on getting a lot of strong legislative candidates. And by 2004, they controlled both chambers. And one of the reasons that they've been able to control both chambers of the Missouri General Assembly is the fact that Republicans have done increasingly well in rural Missouri. One place in particular is Northeast Missouri, a region that I spent a lot of time in in 2017 and may provide a better insight into the Democratic decline. Okay, let's get started here. As anybody who listens to this podcast knows, I am obsessed with Northeast Missouri politics. So you can imagine my excitement in the summer of 2017 when Charlene McCune took me on a tour of Honeyshuck, the Bowling Green, Missouri residence of former U.S. House Speaker Champ Clark. His grandmother was a Republican. His mother died at an early age. So his grandmother had a lot of influence on his life, but as did his father. If not for the treachery of William Jennings Bryan, Clark would have likely become the first Missourian president. Instead, Clark is something of a symbol for how dominant Democrats used to be in this part of the state. Stretching from the northern edge of the St. Louis metropolitan area to the Iowa border, the largely rural region doesn't have a town with more than 20,000 people in it but it's had an outsized role in politics as voters sent scores of Democrats to the General Assembly, many who got their start as county and city officials in Northeast Missouri. Chad Perkins is a deputy with the Pike County Sheriff's Department and a Republican committee man, but it didn't always used to be this way. My dad was a Teamster for 25 years, you know, so we grew up believing that the Republican Party wasn't just wrong, but they were somehow evil, you know, and, um, and that they didn't care about the middle class and working class people in America. Um, so that's where I grew up. Today, not only am I now a Republican, but so is my dad, who believed that for all those years. The Democratic freefall in Northeast Missouri has been stunning. 
Republicans now hold every single state house and Senate district in the area. They're also gaining ground on county commissions and countywide offices such as coroner and sheriff. President Donald Trump plays a role in this situation. He received anywhere from 70 to 80 percent of the vote in most northeast Missouri counties, and his continued popularity likely helped Josh Hawley carry the region by a landslide in 2018. Pike County Commissioner Justin Shepard says that Trump struck a chord with northeast Missouri voters. So I think people just said this is finally a guy that I believe what he's saying, and I believe when he gets in office he'll do exactly what he says he'll try to do. Now, it should be noted that the GOP shift in northeast Missouri was apparent well before the 2016 election cycle, with the region's residents citing a number of factors. For one thing, northeast Missouri has had a Republican congressman for more than two decades, and that person developed a financial and organizational infrastructure for Republican candidates that didn't exist several decades ago. That proclivity to vote Republican on a national level has trickled down to local races. As Republican committee woman Gail Frolos explained, residents are having a harder time separating local candidates from the National Democratic Party. And the party has moved so far to the left that for people in the rural area just can't associate with that anymore. And I think they were trying to hold on to that tradition and finally it has just gone so far they don't feel welcome in that party and that they it just left them, like Reagan said. I didn't leave the party, it left me. Most of the GOP candidates for state legislative seats have been well-known in their communities as either farmers or business people. They also had lots of money because political donors tend to direct their dollars to the party that controls the Missouri General Assembly, and that's been the Republicans since 2003. Marianne Lovell is a Democratic activist from Louisiana, Missouri. She says the GOP's money advantage is scaring off potential Democratic candidates for the state legislature. People don't want to put their name out there to get all the family matter, family trash and all the untruths told on them. And so why put yourself through that turmoil and be called everything but human and accused of everything. There's also demographics. Many voters that stuck with the Democratic Party for decades are literally dying out. And Lovell says that local Democratic parties throughout Northeast Missouri were complacent to changing political sensibilities. Democrats became so secure they were going to win every election. They just gave up trying. And all of a sudden, they, we allowed the Republicans to take over. So, Joe, what, do you have any theories on why Democrats have declined so precipitously in places like Northeast Missouri? Well, some of it is the whole social issue problem, but, you know, over, you know, gays, guns, abortion. But I think Democrats don't help themselves by trying to sound like Republicans unless they truly believe that. I think um, there's a lot of economic stress, let's say, in Northeast Missouri and in other parts of rural Missouri. A lot of those farmers have been devastated by the Trump tariffs, and Democrats could be out there campaigning, explaining how they would approach this differently, especially since their party now controls the U.S. House. There's things that Democrats could be doing to help their lot in life, and they're not doing it. I mean, according to Wikipedia, right now, of the 163 members of the Missouri House, only 46 are Democrats. That means that the Democrats really have nowhere else to go but up. Almost all those 46 are all urban Democrats. We'll be right back after this message. Missouri Democrats are clearly pining for a comeback, 
but Republicans are not taking the defense of their statewide offices and legislative majorities lightly. While he has not officially announced his gubernatorial bid yet, Parson has hired a campaign manager and has significantly more money in his campaign war chest than Galloway. After speaking to the Missouri Republican Party's Lincoln Days earlier this year, Parson stressed that Republicans need to have an attractive record to present to voters next year. We have to do the things that affect the everyday mom and dads and the children out there for the future, and there's no reason Republicans can't lead on that. And sometimes I think we get kind of off on the side road sometimes when we just need to stay focused. What is it really Missourians want and how do we deliver that service? Missouri Republican Party Chairwoman Kay Hofflander expressed confidence that the voters that came out for the GOP in the last few election cycles will arrive once again in 2020. Another reason that I think we're going to stay strong as Republicans, not just gathering Democrats, but we haven't lost our base. They're very solid and they're not they're not leaving. And in fact, I see greater strengths and growth in counties. I mentioned earlier that the Missouri Democrats are not expecting an influx of national money. Well, neither are key GOP leaders such as U.S. Senator Roy Blunt. He says that people like Parson and the rest of the statewide ticket should not expect the National Party to prop them up. Democrats are also seeing that they have also lost that same uh, outside focus where Missouri was always a bellwether state uh, until the McCain-Obama election was over and hasn't been a bellwether state since then. So the party's just frankly paid a lot of attention to our state for about 100 years at a national level, and they're not doing that now. In any case, the fate of Missouri's statewide contenders is largely beyond the political party's control. If Missouri voters still feel good about Trump and his policies, Republican candidates like Parson will likely benefit. But that may change if Missouri residents sour on the president or if the economy lags which is exactly what happened in 2008 when Democrats won nearly every statewide contest in Missouri. And there is precedent in other states of Democrats coming back from political oblivion. One person who knows this firsthand is St. Louis Public Radio reporter Julie O'Donohue, who worked in the State House for the New Orleans Times-Picayune. Julie, I'm sure that there were people in Louisiana who thought Republicans are going to be in control of the state forever, Democrats are never going to come back. And lo and behold, in 2015, there's a Democratic governor. How did this happen? I think it was a combination of a lot of things. Um, I think um, the governor of Louisiana, John Bell Edwards, um, is a fairly conservative Democrat on some issues. He's very, very against abortion. He's he's probably more pro-gun rights than many Democrats are. Um, and so and he also is the son and grandson of a sheriff, the brother of a sheriff. He went to West Point, so he has a military background. So I think all those things were very appealing to people. Um, but, you know, I think he ran a great campaign and there were some problems with the t- the. He actually ran against three Republicans. Louisiana system is odd. They all had had problems. Um, and I think in the end, kind of because the Republicans were mostly beating up on each other, uh, Governor Edwards benefited because he was kind of out on his own. Did Democrats have a similar problem in Missouri where maybe they were doing well in large cities, but they had lost a lot of ground in rural areas? Right. So in Louisiana, Democrats dominate New Orleans, which I don't think is going to surprise anyone on the podcast, um, listening to the podcast. Um, And they also 
pretty much dominate Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge is a little bit like St. Louis County. There's some conservative um, pockets. Um, and then, you know, there's a large African-American population in Louisiana. Obviously, you know, that Democrats do very well in, in areas with a large African-American population. But I would say one of the interesting things is about the governor of Louisiana being a Democrat is he's not really brought people with him. So all the other people in statewide office are still Republicans. We've had a few special elections, or Louisiana has recently, and they haven't really, they they haven't really, Democrats haven't really gotten traction outside of him. And I would say this happens in very liberal states too. I mean, Maryland has a Republican governor right now, and it, it it's hard to imagine like how that happens uh, given the makeup of Maryland. You mentioned the social issues, which is kind of shorthand for abortion rights and gun control. And Louisiana, as you mentioned, has tended to elect anybody who is opposed to gun control and is opposed to abortion rights. Nicole Galilee is neither. She is in favor of abortion rights and she is in favor of gun control. Do you think that a similar archetype could have succeeded in Louisiana who may have been kind of more in line with the mainstream Democratic thought on that issue? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. So it has been a very long time since Louisiana had a governor that was um, pro-abortion rights. The last one probably was Edwin Edwards in the mid-90s. Um, Kathleen Blanco, who who died recently, uh, she was a Democrat, too, and she was the governor, you know, 12 years ago. And, and she she was opposed to abortion, too. So I, I think I think that's a hard sell. Honestly, I think. Missouri is different in, than Louisiana in that, like, there's two major urban hubs. And I, I, I'm reluctant to talk about abortion, really, and, and what the makeup is that. But I think when you have major urban hubs with large suburban communities, I honestly think that gun rights, you know, I think there's an opening there. I think there's been a shift in how view, people view that issue. Um, I think that there's just, like, a, a want for certain types of communities, maybe I would say like some suburbs and exurbs of St. Louis to have some middle ground on that issue. Now, it should be noted that we're still a year off before voters go to the polls, an eternity in Missouri politics. But perhaps the unofficial kickoff for 2020 occurred earlier this month in Sedalia, where both Parson and Galloway attended a ham breakfast at the Missouri State Fair. St. Louis Public Radio's State House reporter Jacqueline Driscoll was on hand for the festivities, and she said the mood was a little bit different than the State Fair at her old stomping grounds in Illinois. I thought that the atmosphere was pretty jovial. Uh, there were a lot of Republicans, obviously. I saw a lot of um, Trump 2020 gear, a lot of Make America Great Again hats. Um, but I also saw Auditor Nicole Galloway kind of circling the crowd, um, weaving in and out, and she was taking pictures with people. Um, it looked like she had support for, from people that were present at the ham breakfast as well. So um, I, I hate to always bring it back to what I'm used to in Illinois, but at the Illinois State Fair, um, it seems to be much more contentious among the different political parties. They have their own separate days, so they don't interact at all. So honestly, it was kind of a breath of fresh air to see them kind of 
just interacting together. One of the issues that Galloway mentioned both during the state fair and during her speech at the Truman Dinner was Missouri's eight-week abortion ban known as HB 126. Give me a sense of what she had to say on that topic. Galloway was extremely critical of the bill. Um, She called it cruel and extreme. She was very critical of the governor uh, on this particular issue. And uh, even though she did say that there may, if she were to become governor, that she believed there should be some uh, abortion restrictions later in pregnancy, she was still very critical of this piece of legislation. I don't think that people in positions of power either realize or do not care how their positions affect how women feel about their personal safety. Women have a constitutional right to health care, and they should be able to access that. My understanding is another reporter asked Galloway if she would be in favor of any restrictions on abortion. What did she have to say about that? Right. That was actually Crystal Thomas from the Kansas City Star. She did press her on um, one of the comments she made saying that uh, she believed there should be restrictions later on in a pregnancy. Um, But when Thomas pressed her on this, when uh, Crystal pressed her on this, she said, um, she simply trusts women to make their own health care decisions. Both candidates were pressed on whether they would push for gun control measures. And from your report for St. Louis Public Radio, Parson actually appeared receptive about some of those ideas. Could you elaborate further on that? He mentioned a report done by USA Today that was completed, I believe, in 2018 that put three of Missouri's cities Uh, Kansas City, Springfield, and St. Louis in the top 12 most dangerous cities in the U.S. So he uh, kind of recognized that Missouri had some problem areas, um, and he was receptive to the idea of, you know, universal background checks. Um, With his career in law enforcement, he said that it's probably better to know as much as we can about people before they do get a hold of firearms. I'm going to be adamant to people that are legal citizens in the state on their Second Amendment rights, the right to bear arms, have their rights, and you got to be very careful you're not taking their rights away. But I think we need to look at all things that we can hopefully get that done, whether that means more law enforcement on the ground, whether that means the mental health side of it, whether that means when people in social media today, some of the things they're putting out. Yeah, I think they should be flagged sometimes. If you're threatening to kill somebody, somebody ought to know you're doing that. And what did Galloway have to say about the issue? Galloway actually had similar things to say that you just heard from Governor Parson. They didn't really differ too much. They both said that they would support universal background checks. They both said that there should be some versions of of red flag laws. Galloway did mention that she um, wanted to get rid of of, um, some purchasing loopholes, though. This is a crisis. It's a human tragedy. It's a public health crisis. But also, there's not going to be economic development in those marginalized communities if there is not safety in those communities. You know, I support common sense gun safety measures like universal background checks, getting rid of the loopholes, um, things that are supported by both parties in a bipartisan way at the federal level and at the state level. There are things that can be done to make our communities safer, and we should not shy away from that. Jacqueline, at the risk of typecasting you as the former Illinois public radio reporter that brings Illinois perspective into Missouri issues, (laughs) from my understanding from talking with you, there was a lot of opposition to gun control measures in Illinois, even though the state has taken a very democratic turn. What was your experience covering some of those issues, and 
how did some of the proponents of some of the ideas that both Galloway and Parson mentioned get over the legislative hump, so to speak? Yeah, even in Illinois, and even after these mass shootings, which you normally see a lot of the proposed legislation coming forward, um, I I remember right after the Vegas shooting, so it was uh, during the veto session um, in Illinois, where um, lawmakers tried to get bump stocks banned, and that failed because they also tacked on things like gat cranks and um, trying to legislate what are called ghost guns. So it appeared to me that um, there just wasn't a general consensus on enough of the pieces of legislation being brought forward um, to get enough votes to pass. Illinois is very Democratic, but there's also um, some downstate Democrats that have to vote for their base. And a lot of the downstate people in Illinois um, do not support different gun control measures. I think it's interesting when you think about just the word gun, the perception of gun, how different that just that word is when you're thinking in Chicago to downstate, right? Downstate, we think of recreational or, you know, for a sport. And up in Chicago, they think of gang violence and, and, and killings. So um, it's a very split state, um, even when it comes to something like gun control. One other announcement that Parson had at the fair was about a special session he called earlier this week. I'm going to let the governor use his own words to describe what he's trying to accomplish at this special session. And, and really, the, the simple version of it is, uh, it's when you trade cars in. For example, if you trade two cars in, you get a credit back on those two cars or for that model if you're buying another one. There was a ruling by the Supreme Court that says you can only do one. So if you, they only get credit for one, uh, I'm a big believer You know that you should be able to get both of those vehicles. You paid taxes on it already. You ought to be able to utilize that against another vehicle. So it's it's more of a uh, a technical side of it, I guess, but it probably affects maybe two or three thousand people in the state. But it's money out of their pocket, and we got to face the fact that we might need to fix that. How did Galloway and other Democrats react to this announcement? Because from scanning social media, this hasn't been received particularly warmly. Right. And as we're recording this, you know, he just announced this just a couple hours ago. So I haven't had the chance to call as many Democrats as I would like, but I did get the chance to speak with Auditor Galloway. And she wasn't as critical of the decision as I thought she would be. She's asking the governor to call a special session for school safety. Um, But yeah, it's not really being that warmly received because I I, I, from my understanding, this particular issue affects such a small population of Missouri. As you heard the governor say there, around two to 3,000 people. That's fewer than 0.1% of the population. Um, so, it, again, I don't always want to go back to my experience in Illinois, but when we're calling special, when we had called special session in Illinois, it was for things like, you know, we didn't have a budget for two years, not because of auto sales. That's it for this edition of Politically Speaking. I want to thank Joe, Julie, and Jacqueline for joining me for this episode. If you have a question for anybody on St. Louis Public Radio's political team, please email us at feedback at stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Julie on Twitter at J.S. O'Donohue. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. And follow Jacqueline on Twitter at Driscoll NPR. I'm Jason Rosenbaum, and thank you for listening.